Worship team. Kids, you are dismissed for Children's Church, so you can leave at this time. And let's take our Bibles. We will turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 7. The name of the series is A Healthy Church. In order to have a healthy church, we really have to have a heart for the gospel. I recently watched a movie, McFarland. Any of you have seen that? It's a Disney film. It's about a coach named Coach White who goes to a small town in rural California. He was sent there because he misbehaved And that was kind of the last stop before being fired. So he goes into this Hispanic community. And in that Hispanic community, there was a lot of confusion. As a matter of fact, he probably showed a good deal of contempt for the community and the people in it. But then as he began to coach, as he started to rub elbows with people that he had never rubbed elbows with before, that contempt changed into concern. He saw the difficult lives of the students. Students who would get up before dawn to go and pick in the fields before they went to school and then return to those same fields after school. Students that were on the edge of poverty, even with all of the hard work, the wages were extremely low. And so he started to feel not only concern, but ultimately compassion. Isn't it amazing how we can form ideas about people that we don't really come into contact with on a regular basis? that it's easy to put into a category and say, this is this group of people, and I'm unconcerned about them because I don't know anyone in that group. And as I started thinking about that film, I started thinking, you know, as believers, we can be guilty of that same thing when it comes to unbelievers. We find that for many of us, once we become a Christian, we cut all ties with unbelievers And we lump them into this group. They're the lost. They're the unbelievers. And we lose our concern, our compassion for them. We don't see them as God sees them, as precious souls for whom Christ died. Some of us can even move into the place to where we see them as the enemy. And that is so unscriptural. It's wrong. But we can come to that place. When we come to 1 Timothy chapter 2, we see the Apostle Paul speaking to Timothy and encouraging him to have a heart for everyone around him. Paul had told Timothy to defend the gospel, to protect it in chapter 1. But as we come to chapter 2, he starts to share with Timothy how he needs to proclaim the gospel, to preach the gospel to those outside the church. So protect the gospel within the church. Make sure that you are following the true gospel of Jesus Christ. But then 
Proclaim it to those outside the church. Make sure that you are bringing the truth of God to those around us. That's what God wants us to see as we're going through 1 Timothy. And so one of the greatest ways to get us to be concerned about other people is to pray for them. God wants us to pray purposefully for everyone in general, and in particular, God wants us to pray purposefully about their salvation. It needs to be a priority. Look at this first verse. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for just our fellow Christians. No. What does it say? For everyone. You know, when I counsel someone who's really having a problem with a brother, they're really at odds with them. You know what I tell them? Pray for them. Not the kind of prayer, oh God, change this person so they'll be easier to get along with. But pray for blessing. Become invested in that other person's need. Love them. Care about them. Pray for them. This is what God is telling us to do as believers for everyone, those within the church, but also those outside the church. And that begins to drive our desire to share with them the important truths of God's truth as we become invested in them through prayer. Paul uses four words for prayer here that we need to reflect on, and he talks about them as a priority. Notice he says, first of all, he's talking about place of priority, that prayer should play in our interaction, in our care, our concern with other people. So let's look carefully at this. First of all, requests are to be made. You know what that word requests mean? It's translated sometimes supplication. It means that we look at the needs of other people and we bring those before God. We petition God for the needs of other people. We pray that God will help those people. This is what God wants of us as His followers, as His children. He wants us to be concerned about the needs of other people because then we become invested in those people. This is how God wants us as believers to operate. Then look at the next one, prayers. Now, prayers is just the general term for the word prayer found most often in the New Testament. But again, it's bringing those people before God. It's us becoming engaged and involved in their needs. It's us having compassion for them, seeing them as more than just the lost, seeing them as real people with real needs that we need to bring before God. And then the next one, we're to intercede for them. Now, this is a powerful word. Intercede means that we are making requests on their behalf and we are coming ourselves before God desiring to see help and the ministry of God in the life of another person. We're great at this when it comes to praying for one another. But God wants us to pray this for everyone, to broaden our boundaries, to take it beyond just the walls of the church to that coworker, that neighbor, that family member, 
That person that you see on television who shares a need that they have and it tugs at your heart. You can pray. Sometimes we limit God in our prayers because we don't pray enough. We don't pray broad enough. We isolate on a few and we limit ourselves. And then look at the next one. This is really unusual. We're to give thanks. We're to give thanks for that coworker that drives us up the wall. We're to give thanks for that neighbor that parties on Saturday night before I have a sermon the next morning. We're to give thanks for the person who just cut you off in traffic on your way to church. We're to give thanks for our government. We're to give thanks for those who are ideologically opposed to where we are. That's tough, isn't it? But that's what God is calling us to in this passage. Isn't it easy for us to gravitate toward the people that we feel comfortable with? The people like us, for the most part, and to exclude those who are different. God wants us to have a heart for them, so he calls us to prayer for them. And then, if this isn't enough, look at verse 2. For kings and all of those in authority. Now, I want you to think about who was king when Paul wrote this. Nero. And if any of you have studied your ancient Roman history, you know that Nero was a madman. He persecuted the church mercilessly. He took Christians, poured oil over them, and put them on poles to light his garden. That's the character, that's the nature of Nero. And yet, here is Paul saying, pray for everyone, pray for Nero. The king during his time, and not only Nero, but those in authority over you. We have a polarized nation, and we as believers contribute to the polarization. We reject those who differ with us politically, and we do so with such tenacity that it's hard for us to pray for them. When was the last time you prayed for God's blessing on the opposing party to whatever party you follow? Man, I, I read this and God convicted me. God convicted me. I need to pray for the governing authorities, even the ones that I don't agree with. If Paul could do this for Nero... And for those who saw to his eventual martyrdom, then I need to be able and willing to do the same. But there's a, another part to this. There's a purpose behind this prayer. And in particular, there's a purpose for praying for the kings and those in authority. And that's to bring us into a perspective to where we can interact with these people. 
Notice verse 2 says, after telling us to pray for our kings and all of those in authority, there's a purpose, and that's indicated by the word that, so that we might live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Now, what precisely was Paul praying for? When it came to the governing authorities, he was praying that there would be protection so that he might be able to live his Christian life in a way that would attract people to the gospel. He was praying that the government would interfere with the gospel in the least way possible. Now, understand this. When Paul is talking about a quiet and peaceful life, he is not talking about a life free of persecution. Jesus made this promise that if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. We can count on that. So what does he mean by a peaceful and a quiet life? What he means is this that we will have that inward peace and that sense of center and quietness that is unflappable and that the government around us will allow us to live that kind of life in a way that attracts others to Jesus Christ. And I think it's important as we look at this text that we think about our own lives and what God wants to see in us. God wants to see us lead peaceful and quiet lives. Think about what that means specifically for you. Often we have the temptation when we see injustice to be in people's face, and there's a place where we need to take a stand, but sometimes that degenerates into a place of enmity. We view those who differ from us through the lens of controversy and conflict, and we carry that into our relationships with other people. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Non-Christians do not behave like Christians. We can't expect them to. And when they live according to their nature, we should not respond in kind. We should be peaceful and quiet and loving as we interact with them. More than that, the text goes on to say that we are to live in all godliness and holiness. You know what our priority is to be? To lead a godly life. Now, a godly life very simply carries with it the idea that I conduct myself in such a way that when people see me living out my faith, they respect my God because of my life. That's a godly life. When people look at our lives, what do they see? Do they see godliness? Do they see love and compassion and care and concern? Or do they view us as believers as extreme and radical and uncaring and judgmental, rejecting of others, not welcoming? As believers, we want to lead godly lives. And what we're going to see as we go through this text is having a godly life is a life that reflects the very heart of God who loves the lost 
and who sent his son into this world to give his life for the lost. That's the way God wants us to live. We're to live holy lives. You know what it means to, to live a holy life? It means that we are set apart unto God, that we reflect the character, the nature, the moral boundaries of God in the way we conduct ourselves around others. God wants us to live in this way. God wants us to lead holy lives. If we are so much like the world that they can't see a difference in us and them, then we've missed the mark. Holy people should live differently. And God wants that of us. But in that holiness, it is me looking to my life and saying, I will live the Scripture. I will be obedient to what God calls me to do. It's not me looking in the lives of others and constantly saying, I'm holy, you're not, get with the program. It's me looking at my life and saying, I need to live my life in such a way that it reflects well upon God and so that people can see the light of the gospel through my life as I live out God's truth. This is where God wants us to be. And that brings us to our next point. The next point that Paul makes as far as having a heart for the gospel is that we need to have a perspective on the heart of God for people. And what we need to understand is, as we pray for others, this pleases God our Savior. And we want to please Him. Look with me at verse 3. This is good and pleases God our Savior. When we pray for others, when we are concerned for what is going on in the lives of others, when we seek to represent God well to those around us, it pleases God. Now some of us may look and we may say, now wait a minute, if I'm praying for everyone everywhere and the governing authorities, I'm going to be doing a lot of praying. The Bible does say pray without ceasing. But does that mean that this becomes my 24-7 ministry doing nothing but praying? Let me share with, some, you, share with you something about prayer. Prayer is to get our minds and our hearts in line with God. Prayer is never about us bending God's will to accomplish what we want. Prayer is always about me gaining God's perspective and praying according to His will. So when it's telling us in this passage that our prayer pleases God, what it's sharing with us is the importance of accepting and embracing the very perspective of God. And believe me, that happens through prayer. As I pray for the lost, I become concerned for the lost. They are no longer the lost. They're human beings in need of Jesus Christ. They are sinners for whom Christ died, of whom I am chief, as we saw in the first chapter. That's the perspective that we need to have as believers. And that's what truly pleases God. And when we have this mindset, this attitude, we will passionately desire all men to be saved. Look at this third verse. 
This is good and pleases God our Savior. And then the fourth verse. Look at how God our Savior... By the way, this is the second time in 1 Timothy that God has been identified as the saving God. But look at what verse 4 says, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. The heart of God is that all men would be saved. This is not an isolated text. We find this principle repeated several times in Scripture. In the Gospel of John, the verse that we all memorize, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. God loved who? The world. And gave His only begotten Son. We need to come to terms with the heart of God and people. God loves them. Peter wrote this, The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Now here, he was talking about the return of Jesus Christ. But then it goes on to say, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The Scripture could not be clearer about the heart of God. God takes no joy in the condemnation of the lost. He loves them. He's concerned for them. He wants all men to be saved. That is why Christ came into the world to save sinners, right? Because of His love, because of His compassion, because of what He would offer in the provision of the cross. We need to have that same heart, that same compassion. We need to love like God loves We need to have that desire that all men would be saved. Now, here's something that we see. Although God wants all men to be saved, not all men will be saved. It breaks the heart of God, but God must respond to the wickedness of man. The Scripture says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Man suppresses the truth of God. And we need to understand that. The suppression of God's truth will be done by man, but God has provided a way for them to know God. God has provided a way, and that is through Jesus Christ. Some have misinterpreted this fourth verse to think that there is a universal salvation, that all people, no matter how they respond to God, will be saved. If God wants everyone to be saved, then everyone's going to be saved. That's not what the text is teaching. 
What it's talking about is the heart and the desire of God. But God allows man to make a choice. Will I receive or will I reject? And he is absolutely held responsible for the rejection. It breaks the heart of God. It should break our hearts. But God holds them accountable. And really, if you just read the fourth verse, you might think that since God desires everyone to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth, in other words, to respond to the truth of the gospel, that might be a compelling argument to use this verse as a proof text for universal salvation. But then we come to the next text and the next point. God has made a provision for everyone's sin, and that is the person, Jesus Christ. Look carefully with me at the fifth verse. There is a person who is the mediator between God and men, and that is Jesus Christ, and there is no other. Let's look carefully at what's being said. First of all, there is one God. We live in a pluralistic society. Our society tells us that there are many roads to the top of the mountain, many gods who can take you into a relationship with the Father. I'm sure many of you have heard your friends articulate that perspective. The Scripture is quite different, isn't it? There is one God. Crystal clarity. The thing that is confusing about pluralism is this. They look at the world around them And they say there are no absolutes. By the way, when I say there are no absolutes, I have just stated an absolute truth. So it's logically inconsistent. That very statement is untrue in and of itself, right? What's amazing is so many of the gods that people talk about as being many ways to the same destination, eternal life, they are contradictory toward one another. They all express differing paths to reach the objective. Here, the Word of God is talking exclusivity. There is only one God. Not many, but one. And then it goes on to boldly make this statement. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. There is only one way into a relationship with God. What is a mediator? A mediator basically means a go-between. But I looked it up in some fancy theological dictionaries, and here are some of the definitions that I found. So I want to share those with you. A mediator is a person who helps parties come to an agreement by guaranteeing the certainty of the agreement. So Jesus Christ is the mediator between man and God. He is the one who gives us the ability to come into a relationship with God, him and him alone. Jesus is fully human and fully God, so he's the ideal mediator. And his death, burial, resurrection on the cross, provides forgiveness for our sins so that that which stands between us and God can be removed 
by his sacrifice. Jesus is the one mediator. He is the one who intervenes between two parties. He's the one who brings restoration from our brokenness and our separation from God. So Jesus is the one mediator. And this bears with what Jesus said when he spoke to the disciples in the upper room. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the only path to a relationship with God the Father. And why was he able to say this? Because Jesus made payment for our sin. Look at what verse 6 shares. After it's pointed out that he is the one mediator, verse 6 shares with us that he gave himself as a ransom for all men the testimony given in its proper time. Again, the idea that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, chapter 1, is repeated again that He gave Himself a ransom for all men. Just in case we don't understand it, the Scripture is emphasizing again and again and again that Jesus came to pay for the sin of all men. What does it mean that Jesus is the ransom? In Paul's day, a ransom was paid to set a slave free, one who probably had been captured in war and turned into a slave. There was a ransom price that could be paid that would set the slave free from that captivity. Jesus Christ paid that ransom for you and for me, for all men. He offers Freely, forgiveness, restoration with God, that opportunity to know Him, to find forgiveness for our sins, and to find eternal life. What a beautiful text this is. What great promises we find in this text. You see, the Scripture is very clear. The wages of sin is death. What we deserve because of our sin is eternal death. Thank God for the second half of that verse, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God freely opens the way for us to have a relationship with the Father, and it's based on the payment of Jesus Christ. Nothing that I earn, nothing that I do, can in any way earn a place in that relationship with God, only by the free gift that Jesus Christ offers, being the ransom for my sin, do I find forgiveness in a relationship with the Father. Isn't that a great truth? God wants us to be saved. God made the way for us to be saved. And that way is through Jesus Christ. The Apostle John said this, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. Now what does propitiation mean? It means satisfaction. 
That word would often be stamped on ancient documents to fulfill a contract, and it meant paid in full. This is what Jesus has done for us, is paid the ransom. We're delivered from sin. And it's all because of the one who is the mediator. But one final point that Paul wants to make. He will proclaim the message of the gospel. Look carefully at the end of the sixth verse. After Paul states that Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all men, he says the testimony given in its proper time. Now that's referring to Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate testimony of the gospel. People were able to witness his death, burial, and resurrection. The fact that he died to pay for our sin and was raised in victory over sin. And that testimony is the testimony upon which the gospel stands. It's our firm foundation because it is true. We have the ultimate testimony in Christ Jesus. But then look at the seventh verse. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. Jesus is the ultimate testimony, but he has appointed others to testify. One of those who was appointed to testify to carry the good news of our faith, the gospel, was the Apostle Paul. We see his testimony clearly in the book of Acts where he's appointed to do this. But listen, not only was Paul appointed to be that bearer of God's truth, you and I are also. We have the responsibility. We have been called and appointed to share this truth with others. For those around us who do not believe you are that testimony that God has placed in that sphere of influence to share the gospel. Your neighbor, co-worker, your family member, all of those people that are around you and that you come across the paths of in day-to-day life, You're appointed to be that messenger to share that truth. We will do this when we have the heart of God. So let me encourage you this morning, look at yourselves and ask yourselves this question. Do I have the heart of God when it comes to the gospel? Now, none of us can say, yeah, I absolutely have the heart of God when it comes to the gospel always room for improvement. I understand that. But what I'm asking is, do I even demonstrate it in the most minute way? Is there a spark? Is there a glimpse of the heart of God in my life, in the way that I interact with other people, in my passion for the lost? Have I become so isolated in my comfortable Christian world that I've forgotten those who exist outside it? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. 
We have to wonder, do I have that passion? And listen, if you find yourself falling short, don't beat yourself up. Just make a change. Ask God for that heart, for that passion. As you begin praying for others, pray for yourself. God, broaden my view, broaden my perspective. Help me to understand what it is to have that kind of a burden for the lost, to love them the way you love them, to see them as you see them. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for this text. It's a challenging text. It's a text that reminds us that we are to have your heart when it comes to people. Dear God, give us a passion. Give us a love. Give us the desire to see people for whom Christ paid the ransom come to that full knowledge of the truth and experience your forgiveness. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.